Hello, I'm Earl Fontenelle, and you are listening to The Schwepp, the secret history of Western esotericism podcast online at schwepp.net. Episode 72, Hypochondria and Epiphany, the strange case of Alias Aristides. Alias Aristides was a second century sophist, one of the Greek performing orators of the period from Nero's reign until about the 230s CE that we've been talking about now on the podcast for a while. This period is known as the Second Sophistic. Now, Alias is not what we'd call a central figure of Western esotericism. In fact, he's arguably not an esoteric thinker at all, and really not much of a thinker at all. Although, as we shall see, he employs the usual rhetorics of public secrecy that we associate with Middle Platonist appropriation of mystery themes and similar stylistic flourishes. So the discourse of the esoteric is very much present in his work. Alias is, in fact, an upper-class twit with an out-of-control Asclepius habit, but we wanted to cover his peculiar work for a few reasons at this point in the podcast, which are more or less as follows. Alias wasn't just any orator. He was an orator with recurring bowel complaints and a host of other ailments, and these, luckily for historians of religion, drove him into the arms of Asclepius, the god of healing whose trademark was incubatory cures. And he published a series of diary-like records of his incubatory experiences entitled the Hiroi Logoi. Now, this is usually translated as sacred tales. A Hiros Logos was first and foremost the cultic myth told to initiates in mystery cults. We also have Hiroi Logoi attributed to Pythagoras, for example, in the pseudepigraphic Pythagorean tradition. So this title is making a big deal of Alias's writings. So we won't be calling these works the sacred tales, as this doesn't really do justice to the kind of portentous atmosphere Alias is aiming at with his title. It should be something more like holy narrations, or something like that. And we'll just call them the heroi logoi and be done with it. But we shall return to this framing of his work by Alias as a kind of initiatory secret writing. So in Alias's Hero Logoi, we have our best first-hand source for incubation cult from an active practitioner. He was constantly at the Asclepion in Pergamon, looking for cures to his various complaints through revelatory dreams, and he tells us about this process in sometimes grueling detail. This makes him interesting vis-a-vis the discussion of incubation in recent episodes of the podcast, but it's interesting for a few subsidiary reasons as well. First of all, Alias has what you might call a personal relationship with Asclepius. He sort of loves him, and his writings have been seen in the history of religions, Fistugier has argued this quite influentially, as the first major surviving document of what comes to be known in the literature as personal religion or spirituality or a number of other names. The point here is that people in our period, the second sophistic, begin moving into a new religious modality where they have a personal relationship with their gods, which is kind of intimate in a new way. And very often they have just one god, and this has been overemphasized in the literature perhaps, but Alias does very much confine his overarching devotions to Asclepius, even though lots of other gods figure in his uh, personal religion. Temples are not the point anymore. Sacrifice is not the point anymore. It's about the inner relationship with the god and the powerful 
religious human being as the locus of supernatural power. So Christianity is where this new modality of religion plays out in a big way. Think of saints and their miracles. Even the miracles performed at shrines housing bits of dead saints. But we shall also see variations on this uh, new personalization and interiorization of religion in the Hermetica, in Gnostic movements, and in a number of other more esoteric corners of religious history as well. So we want to check out that aspect of Alias for the light it sheds on the rise of spirituality in the second century and on the practitioner's body as the site of supernatural power. We also want to use the opportunity presented by the Hero Logoi to talk a little bit about Epiphany. Epiphany, or Epiphaneia in its pre-Christian context, referred to the appearance of a god or gods to human beings in a number of different contexts. This can be a visible appearance, and often is, but sometimes involves the other senses as well. So it could be a voice heard, or even a special smell can constitute an epiphany. And sometimes there's just a feeling of divine presence. We'll see this in Alias's work. Sometimes too, prodigious events like ominous weather or natural disasters are considered epiphanies, examples of the gods actually being present in the human world. The point indeed is the presence of a god or gods in the world of mortals and the knowledge of this presence because if a god comes down and no one perceives his presence it doesn't count as an epiphany you have to know about it now alias's writings are by far our richest first-hand account of epiphany from antiquity we get various gods appearing visibly to alias in dreams but also appearing sometimes in disguised form and that's something we see in homer a lot see episode seven of the podcast on the kind of roots of Greek dream traditions, including the Homeric accounts, and sometimes a host of other types of dream imagery, much of which is read by Alias as constituting divine epiphany. So his dreams, for him, are a kind of field of epiphany. Now, epiphany is something that is of central interest to many strands of Western esotericism, not least the Greek magical pyre and theurgy, which we shall be discussing in due course. But more generally, a major preoccupation of a certain type of ritual practice throughout Western history has been the obtaining of face-to-face encounters with gods, daimones, angels, saints, or what have you. Whether through dreams, through scrying, or just through making the entity appear visibly in front of you here in the waking world. In the Christian tradition, of course, there is a central epiphany narrative at the heart of things namely God's entry into the human realm in the form of Jesus. This, however, is not the model we find in traditional epiphany, although the life of a holy man like Apollonius of Tiana may be the occasion of the manifestation of epiphanies, since the holy man's actual body has become transformed by the gods into a sort of ambulatory sacred precinct. It becomes a locus through which divine epiphanies can occur. And we also see this in the Christian cult of saints. As we mentioned, the mere finger bone of a saint housed in a church can bring on epiphanies. So this more traditional model of epiphany, not the Christian Christ as man, God model, but the one whereby the the body becomes a kind of locus for divine intervention, seems to have been the one most valuable to esotericists seeking the presence of the divine down the ages. We'll be returning to this traditional model of epiphany many times in the course of the podcast. Now, let's turn to Alias, who gives us so many fascinating, if annoying, accounts of it. So, 
Publius Aelius Aristides, there's his full Roman name since he was a Roman citizen, lived from 117 to 181 CE. So good, solid second century pedigree. Actually, his full name was Publius Aelius Aristides Theodoros. Theodoros meaning gift of God, because Asclepius gave him the new name in a dream, symbolizing a rebirth of some kind. But it is safe to say that he thinks he is God's gift. To contextualize Aelius's lifetime, he's born just about when Plutarch dies, and is roughly contemporary with Apuleius, the next esoteric sophist we shall be discussing on the podcast. Aelius is from Mysia in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, the son of a rich landowner who gave his boy the best education money could buy. So this is no rags-to-riches story. Aelius came from the leisured classes, was educated to become good at rhetoric, became good at rhetoric. He basically then did the second sophistic thing, traveling around to various cities and various teachers, honing his craft, and giving speeches wherever he went. In fact, he became a superstar, with statues erected to him and loads of later authors praising how awesome his speeches were. But around the year 143, he headed to Rome, looking to make a splash as a hot young sophist from Greece, but he fell ill. Returning home to Asia Minor, he then headed to the great Asclepion at Pergamon, where he would spend most of 10 years visiting the god for healing from a number of complaints. We'll return to this period, which is when he composed the dream diary at the back of the Hieroi Logoi. But first, let's get through our biographical sketch. In the later 140s, he resumed his speaking career, though he was still frail, and even started teaching oratorical students of his own. Then, in 165, a lot later, he really did get sick. Forget about hypochondria for a minute. Aristides caught the Antonine Plague, which was a doozy of a thing, killing perhaps a quarter of the people who caught it. Some scholars think that this plague was smallpox, and others until recently thought it was measles, but apparently studies of the measles virus indicate that it only separated off from the rinderpest virus in something like the year 500 CE, so there most likely was no measles, or should that be, were no measles, in the second century. But anyway, whatever the plague was, it decimated the Roman Empire, and some scholars think China as well, which would make it a Eurasian pandemic. And so even if we want to say that Aelius's earlier bowel complaints and such were a kind of hypochondria, or psychosomatic illness, which has been a common scholarly reading, we have to give him a pass on the uh, respiratory troubles he faced after catching the plague, because the Antonine Plague was no joke. Now, the fact that Aelius's hero Logoi are a kind of diary-esque personal narration has led many scholars of religion to pounce on his work as a superb example of an unvarnished first-hand account of religious experience in antiquity. This is silly. The guy was an orator. We have his own testimony that he wrote a diary of his revelatory dreams on the command of Asclepius himself. Okay, fine. But this is not what he published. He published an oratoricized, edited account of the diary interspersed with flowery passages of explanation. Thus, we cannot think this is some kind of candid, off-the-cuff work any more than we can think that the genre of ancient philosophical letters were simply that, private missives from one friend to another. In both cases, we're looking at material intended for publication, 
And in the case of Alias, a guy whose job description was literally to give and publish good speeches on set topics, we must view the Hiroi Logoi as polished literary productions, although unusual ones because of the diary format. They're absolutely precious evidence for second century personal religion, don't get me wrong, they just aren't the kind of literalistic, just-the-facts account of his experiences that some scholars have wanted to see in them. We can also note here the publishing strategy that was used. The Hiroi Logoi were circulated either by Alias himself or by his first editor, we don't know, bundled together with ten other pieces, ten orations, in a collection called Manteutoi, Works Ordained by Oracle. That is, these were being framed as, in some sense, sacred communications from the gods. So, before we get on to the Hiroi Logoi, let's say a few things about Alias's personal religion more generally. First of all, nearly every modern commentator, translator, or scholar who's worked on this guy hates him. <laughs> Bear, who has devoted a huge amount of work to Alias, calls him, quote, a deeply neurotic, deeply superstitious, vainglorious man, end of quote, which makes us wonder why he devoted all that time to him in the first place, but never mind. Alias does indeed have several rather unattractive features. He loves Asclepius, as we've said, but he also has a very high opinion of his self. He's often at pains to big up Asclepius's wonder-working powers, but then also kind of sneakily bigging himself up at the same time as we shall see. And he has this kind of schizophrenic view that everything in the world revolves around himself. Everything is a sign leading him personally to safety, wellness, and so on. And he has been called, rightly or not, a hypochondriac. So he's always got something wrong with him, at least in his sort of sick period. And you definitely get the impression he was the sort of fellow that you meet and then immediately regret asking how he is, right? So he immediately launches into a litany of digestive troubles, descriptions of his bowel movements and so on, and you just think, oh, sorry I asked. But we should balance this modern take on Alias with the fact that he was hugely influential in late antiquity and right through the East Roman Middle Ages. So modern ideas about what constitutes superstitious vainglory are obviously modern, not ancient. And one key to understanding the difference in opinions here is, I think, the fact that to the ancients, fundamentally, epiphanies in dreams were really epiphanies. So this guy was literally talking with the gods all the time. For us, his dreams might transmit a different lesson that the guy saw himself as the center of the universe, but really, he was just an upper-class narcissist, but that isn't how antiquity read him. Asclepius is Alias's personal savior. He often calls him Hosoter, the savior, which has elicited all kinds of ideas about links with Christianity or comparative work with Christianity. But while there is something in that, we should remember that Hosoter is a normal title for gods in this period, referring to the gods' protective action. We're not in a world where souls are saved. We're very much dealing with a world where bodies are saved. So Poseidon can be a Soter, Zeus can be a Soter, etc. They basically keep you alive, protect your stuff. Or in the case of Asclepius with Alias, improve his health. Alias's hypochondria, or let's say his ongoing struggles with his health, may have had something to do, paradoxically, with his love for the god. As any doctor will tell you, there are some patients who just have a need for the psychological kick they get out of 
seeing the doctor and they find themselves eternally ill with mysterious symptoms that won't go away and they find themselves in the doctor's office again and again. Alias seems like he might have been one of those people, only his doctor is a healing god who appears in dreams. We can't actually say how unusual this constant dream incubation was. I mean, it wasn't constant. He wasn't there every day, but he did visit the Asclepion an awful lot. Some people probably got really sick, went and had a dream at the incubation site, and then either were cured or they weren't. But it may be that Alias wasn't the only one who was sort of constantly haunting the Asclepion. He is, in a way, constructing a religion through the way he depicts the time he spends at the incubation sanctuary at Pergamon. He's surrounded in the Hero Logoi almost entirely by elite male Roman citizens, or their slaves, who are kind of there in the background running errands. And this is on the rare occasions when he talks about someone other than himself or the gods. So we know that this doesn't reflect the reality of the sanctuary. Women were present in force at the sanctuary, as proven by many inscriptions. And we know that the price paid to the priest's to incubate there was three obols. That's dirt cheap, so most folks could scrape it together. This was presumably a messy, perhaps somewhat rowdy, but definitely mixed déclassé kind of scene at the Asclepion. But Alias sanitizes it and aristocratizes it. So we could be forgiven for thinking that the Asclepion was only open to highborn citizens. And so when Alias invokes the esoteric, as we shall see him do shortly, He's constructing a religious imaginary of an elite, empowered, aristocratic esotericism. The god grants his favors and gives secret knowledge, not just to anyone, but mainly to Alias himself, and occasionally to his highborn friends. Now let's get into the Hero Logoi a little bit to get a flavor of the kind of thing we're dealing with here, because there's no substitute for going back to the actual texts. There are six books of the Hero Logoi, or six Hierologoi, each one a reasonably lengthy treatise structured as quotes from Alias's dream diary, which he kept years earlier, coupled with commentary. So he's it's like a kind of rewriting and commentary on this diary. We have no idea how true it is to the original diary, but one suspects the answer is not all that true. Hieros Logos I begins with a peroration praising Asclepius, and kind of setting the stage in a flowery, oratorical fashion. Alias then says, with seemingly no sense that this might be considered a jarring swerve, quote, But now I wish to indicate you the condition of my abdomen. And he does, in some detail. We learn all about his abdomen, in fact. So this is the sort of thing we get a lot of in Alias Aristides. <laughs> but more interesting are the dream accounts. The man's dream life is absolutely fascinating and full of epiphanies, both obvious, like Asclepius appeared looking radiant and gigantic, to less obvious, like I dreamt I was taken prisoner by some Parthians, but then the Parthians turn out to be, in fact, delivering a kind of divine esoteric message once you've interpreted the dream. Here's a nice anecdote from the first Heros Logos. Alias has a companion called Zosimus. No relation to the great 4th century alchemist Zosimus of Panopolis. Zosimus is just a fairly common Greek name. So, Zosimus is Alias's friend, and he's seriously ill. Then, Alias has a dream in which Asclepius appears to him, and he supplicates Asclepius to save Zosimus's life. Quote, When the god appeared, I grasped his head with each hand in turn, and having grasped him, 
I entreated him to save Zosimus for me. The god refused. Again, having grasped him in the same way, I entreated him to assent. Again, he refused. For the third time, I grasped him and tried to persuade him to assent. He neither refused nor assented, but held his head steady and told me certain phrases, which it is proper to say in such circumstances, since they are efficacious. And while I remember these, I do not think that I should reveal them purposelessly. But he said that when these were recited, it would suffice. One of them was, keep him, end of quote. So here we have a nice public act of secrecy. I had a privy conversation with the god, but he said, well, it's between us two. However, I can tell you this bit of it. Keep him. Classic esoteric rhetorical strategy. We find other examples of this in the Hierologoi, and it's sort of a common topos in the second century. Now, as I hope I've managed to convey, the model of elite religion being drawn up by Alias is based on incubation, which is neither an elite practice nor is it esoteric in any obvious sense. But we see here how Alias is using the discourse of the esoteric, understood within the context of his editing of the incubation experience into a matter of elite participation. He's using that to depict a kind of esoteric privileging of information between himself and the god. So he's in effect writing the esoteric, he's generating the esoteric with his text. So what happens to Zosimus, I hear you ask? Well, Zosimus is indeed saved by barley gruel and lentils, and he lives another four months. So we return to the text a little later, quote, So his additional life was due to the grace of the god, who truly kept him for me, and he died because he had moved about contrary to my dreams. And thus ended what in the beginning was indicated by the god when I grasped his head and supplicated him. End of quote. Now, there is no mention of a prescription of barley grain and lentils in the dream, but Alias has no problem attributing what he perceives as Zosimus's extra months of life to Asclepius, and sort of to himself, while the fact that he eventually dies anyway is because he didn't listen to Alias's dreams. So this is a good example of how special Alias thinks his incubatory dreams are. Everyone had better listen to them, or else there may be dire consequences. Note the little rhetorical flourish where the phrase, keep him, returns as he truly kept him for me. So this is one of the words revealed by Asclepius, which should not be revealed unnecessarily, but it's okay to reveal the efficacious words taught by the god if they make a nice oratorical figure. So again, like the title, Hieroi Logoi, Alias is evoking a certain aura of initiation here. There isn't really anything secret going on. He babbles too much for real secrecy anyway. He's doing what I call public secrecy, the gesture of secrecy. Another passage from Hiroi Logoi 2 is a very special depiction of Epiphany, and this one is worth checking out. A composite god appears to Alias, quote, and now this is from the Dream Diary. He was at the same time Asclepius and Apollo, both the Clarion and he who is called Kaliternos in Pergamon, and whose is the first of the three temples. Now, as an aside here, note the colorful, sophistic epithets. Kaliteknos means he of the handsome child, i.e. Asclepius, whose various daughters were personifications of health and hygiene and such like. A sophist would never say Zeus when he could use a Homeric epithet like the loud thundering one or something like that. 
So this is another sign that we're dealing with a public composition rather than an unvarnished dream journal, right? Right, back to the quote. Standing before my bed in this form, when he had extended his fingers and calculated the time, he said, you have ten years from me and three from Serapis. And at the same time, the three and the ten appeared by the position of the fingers as seventeen. He said that this was not a dream, but a waking state, and that I would also know it. And at the same time, he commanded that I go down to the river, which flows before the city, and bathe. End of quote. So this is interesting. Incidentally, the counting on the fingers thing, the way it can be 13 and 17 at the same time, the Greeks would count ones on one hand and fives on the other. So if you have three fives on one hand and two fingers on the other hand, you get 17. So the god is telling him he's not asleep. This isn't a dream. The god is literally standing at the foot of his bed. It's always interesting to try to make sense of accounts like this. Now, after the bathing in the river, which is freezing cold, Alias feels great. His body is at an even temperature, something he feels is medically very significant, but his mental state is especially interesting. Quoting from 23, my mental state was also nearly the same, for there was neither as it were conspicuous pleasure, nor would you say that it was like human joy, but there was a certain inexplicable contentment which regarded everything as less than the present moment, so that even when I saw other things, I seemed not to see them. Thus I was wholly with the god. End of quote. So here we have a lovely phenomenological description of a certain state of mind, of being in the divine presence. This is indeed the kind of thing we don't get much in the old school Greek religion, but which we start to see all the time in the new religious movements coalescing around the figure of Jesus and so forth. A kind of Rudolf Otto-ish feeling of the holy or feeling of the numinous. Interesting stuff. And students of the phenomenology of religion will find a lot more juicy nuggets of this sort of first-hand description in Alias, so it's well worth reading through the Heroi Logoi for gems like this one. But the wonder-working powers of the gods are not confined solely to this kind of internal or personal or perhaps subjective experience. They also can make the impossible happen. So in Hero Logoi 3, we have an interesting series of prodigies, visions, and so forth. First of all, in the winter of 144 to 145 CE, when Aelius was in the beginning of his long illness, he was commanded by Isis to sacrifice two geese to her. So we should mention here again maybe that it's by no means solely Asclepius who appears to him in his dreams. Serapis is also a very common visitant. Apollo sometimes appears. Various mysterious underworld deities who are probably Osiris and his cohort, but it's a bit unclear, and so forth. And he often sees gods mingle together like the Apollo Asclepius we mentioned earlier. Anyway, back to Isis. She's ordered him to sacrifice two geese, but his slaves can't find any geese for sale. Except two. However, the owner of these two geese has been commanded not to sell them, but to keep them for, wait for it, Aristides. We aren't told by whom he was commanded to keep them, but it, it's probably Isis. Anyway, when he hears the whole story from Aristides' slaves, he worships the goddess and then gives them the geese for free. He refuses to accept any payment for them because he's so blown away by the divine providence of the goddess Isis. 
So here we have some good old synchronistic, rather magical events illustrating the divine power in the non-subjective everyday world. A kind of uh, impossible thing has happened because of the power of the gods. And now we're going to quote, he sacrifices the geese, and either during the sacrifice or in a dream, he has the following experience. There was also a light from Isis and other things which cannot be told and which pertain to my salvation. Serapis also appeared on the same night, both he himself and Asclepius. They were marvelous in their beauty and magnitude and in some way like one another. End of quote. So again, things which cannot be told, initiatory wisdom. Uh, later in 348, he will recount a, a very terrifying dream, and he calls this an, an initiation. So there's a lot of play here, and invoking, or maybe appropriation is a better term, of the language and themes of mystery religion in a place where there's nothing like mystery religion going on. So these quotes are perhaps all we have time for from the rank and file of Alias's amazing and rich dream diary. But if you imagine this kind of dream account, sometimes with direct epiphanies of the gods, other times seemingly just weird run-of-the-mill dreams, but interpreted as epiphanies of the gods, multiply it by a thousand and intersperse with praises for Asclepius and detailed descriptions of various bodily ailments, and you get a reasonable picture of the hero Logoi, one of the weirdest works surviving from antiquity, and so perhaps worth discussing for that reason alone. But check this out. Alias always depicts himself as a favored friend of the gods, a recipient of their special attention and miraculous favors. Occasionally, though, he strays into proper, wonder-working sage territory, depicting himself as an embodiment of the god's power, an epiphany in human form. So, there were an ongoing series of severe earthquakes in Asia Minor, starting in September 149 CE. Mytilene was mostly leveled. The Ephesians and Smyrnaeans were running around freaking out. They sent to all the major oracles, but they got nothing very useful back, and the earthquakes kept continuing. And finally, things got so bad with repeated earthquakes that they gave up even supplicating. The way Alias paints the picture, they're all kind of lying on their backs, twitching, going, why have the gods forsaken us? This is Alias's account of the events. And here is where Alias comes in. Quote, in these circumstances, the god commanded me, who was living in Smyrna, or rather in the suburbs of the city, to sacrifice publicly an ox to Zeus the Savior. End of quote. Now, public sacrifice of this sort would normally be carried out by a priest, someone with an official position in a temple cult. So Alias is doubtful about doing this because he isn't a priest, but he receives a sign in a dream that he should go ahead. So he does. And lo and behold, the earthquakes stop. Quote, As to what happened next, who wishes to believe, let him believe, and who does not, to him I say farewell. For all those earthquakes stopped, and after that day there was no longer any trouble through the providence and powers of the gods, and by our necessary ministrations. End of quote. So there you have it. Alias Aristides stopped the earthquakes with Zeus's help. As we mentioned, Alias is part of the new post-Hellenistic religious world, where 
Increasingly, it's not temples, but holy human beings that are the locus of divine power. And he's depicting himself here as just this kind of powerful, wonder-working holy man, as we saw in Philostratus's Apollonius of Tiana, for example, who also dealt with natural disasters of various sorts through the power of the gods. This is the figure called by scholars the Theos Aner, the divine man, the late pagan holy man, which, although it is an invention of modern scholarship, so we don't find this term Theos Aner in, in antiquity, in this particular sense, nevertheless, it's kind of become the standard way of characterizing these wonder-working holy men. So Alias seems a very unlikely holy man, of course, but we have little reason to think that this account was subject to any ridicule in antiquity. I'm sure if a Lucian or other level-headed satirist of antiquity had got a hold of it, he would have ripped Alias a new one, but of surviving accounts of Alias, we in fact get people viewing him as a great benefactor to the city of Smyrna. The statue we mentioned earlier in the episode was erected on account of his having written a persuasive oratorical letter to the emperor asking for funds to rebuild the city, like a kind of emergency fund, after the earthquake. So he was honored as a kind of city father for that reason. But here he is telling us that he is so much more than that, the living embodiment of divine power who can stop earthquakes by sacrificing in the public square. Note the way in which he depicts this miraculous stoppage of the earthquakes through the providence and power of the gods and by our necessary ministrations. The gods are indeed great, but they could have done nothing had Alias not been there to do the necessary ministrations. So, Alias Aristides, sophist, incubator, manifester of divine power, an unlikely, rather venal, late pagan sage with a poor constitution and the gift of the gab. We thought it would be good to cover this gentleman in our treatment of the second century, and his example will provide us with lots of useful comparative material as we move forward in the podcast. What should we make, for example, of a different type of sacred tale? I refer, of course, to the Metamorphoses of Apuleius, our oldest surviving occult novel, to use the term rather anachronistically. The Metamorphoses of Apuleius has it all. Esotericism, magic, sex, violence, and our single best attestation of initiation into the mysteries of Isis. So, join us next time for the first in a series of our greatest Latin language, Middle Platonist, Apuleius of Madaura, ineffable initiations and golden asses. And in the meantime, be like the healing words spoken by Asclepius, and stay mostly esoteric. <laughs>